It's worth knowing what's really going on. This is the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. This Friday, your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley! It's anger! Let me at him! Fear! Safety checklist is complete! Disgust! Ew! Ew! Ugh. Sadness is in the house! Oh, no. Hello, I'm Anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going! Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. This, my friends, is Access Atlanta. It's a new podcast that shares the best things to do, see, eat, and experience. AJC Access Atlanta is sponsored by Northside Hospital Cancer Institute, built to beat cancer. I'm here this week with Jennifer Brett, the AJC's expert on all things entertainment and our resident celebrity watcher. And uh, this week, she's brought us a story. Uh, Tell us what you've got for us this week, Jennifer. Well, I was down on the Morehouse College campus the other day. Sometimes I do make visits there when they are hosting filming productions, um, Stepsisters film there. And if you saw the movie Hidden Figures, uh, that did a little bit of filming there. But last week, I was there for a special event. Kamal Bell is the host of United Shades of America, a really fascinating series uh, in on CNN. And one of his upcoming episodes, scheduled to air June the 3rd, is actually going to feature segments filmed at Spellman, Morehouse, and Morris Brown. So it was really fascinating to to get a minute or two to talk with him ahead of time. Cool. So now this, uh, the series, this is actually uh, not not the first season. This is its third season, I believe, right? Yeah, and he travels all over the country and does such a fascinating job delving into these really uh, crucial, vital uh, issues. And uh, this time he's talking about the importance of historically black colleges and universities. And so it was a thrill to see Morehouse, Spellman, uh, Morris Brown, and a little bit Clark Atlanta um, up on the big screen. They did a premiere. I don't want to give us too many spoilers away, but it is absolutely fascinating. You're going to want to tune in uh, coming up June 3rd. So all of this, the, the show itself was was filmed here in Atlanta. So this this particular episode is concentrating on on our city. Yeah, they, they started out uh, in Pennsylvania at Lincoln University and then came down south. And so watching Morehouse at Morehouse was just terrific. And so uh, ahead of time, we got a few minutes to chit chat about um, putting the segment together and some of the other issues that have been in the news recently. Uh, You might have remembered a couple of years ago, um, Kamal came out with a podcast detailing his unfortunate experience at a, at a Berkeley, California coffee shop where he was just uh, chit-chatting with his wife and some of her friends and someone came along and gave him the buns rush. Uh, and then just the other day when this Starbucks mess happened with the two gentlemen who were arrested, you know, marched out of the Starbucks in handcuffs for the crime of sitting 
at a Starbucks. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so he uh, he sort of revisited his episode um, uh, online, and we talked about that a little bit. But he started as a comedian, right? Yeah, and his um, lively personality comes out in full flower in the episode that's filmed on the Morehouse. Although much of the episode really is lively and exciting and engaging, there are some really um, important topics that he touches on as well. For example, Morris Brown, we've read about for years the um, the the struggles they've had. They're they're down to like maybe a few dozen students, but those students are dedicated and um, persevering. Uh, He talked to a professor on the Morris Brown campus who is teaching for free because he's so dedicated to that campus and those students. So it's just a really powerful moment. Moment to see, um, you know, these these students who are just, you know, dedicated to, to pushing on through. Well, it's great to see um, HBCUs get uh, this much airtime and and uh, see what's going on there, especially at our own local ones, because uh, you know they, they don't necessarily make the news all the time. Yet they keep uh, keep on going, and and uh, they provide provide something that maybe other colleges and universities can't. One of the, the things we talked about ahead of time, I, I asked uh, Kamal, the the dual goals that we have in higher education today, you know, a flagship state university such as the University of Georgia is, you know, always trying to diversify its um, its campus and make sure that its campus is inclusive and reflective of the state of Georgia in general. At the same time, of course, um, HBCUs, are you know it's important to to nurture and grow uh, the HBCU community. So I asked if that was at if those two goals were at odds in in any way. He said absolutely not because uh, in some ways students who might not otherwise go to college are are served, and so it's just really vital to make sure that these community institutions of higher learning uh, are supported, nurtured, and grow and they grow. Um, after the the premiere, uh, there was a really lively um, Q and A with the audience, and, and folks asked some great questions. Well, that's great. So we have a little bit of his Q and A. We also uh, have your interview with him. Um, so let's uh, check out this uh, story about uh, W. Kamal Bell and his TV show United Shades of America visiting Atlanta in the June third episode. Well, this uh, United Shades of America, tonight we're going to see the HBCU episode, Historically Black Colleges and Universities, for people who are not familiar, which is many people I found it on Twitter. If you say HBCU, they don't know what you're talking about. Uh, so this is an episode that we shot mostly here, but also partially at Lincoln University in Pennsylvania. And we shot a little bit in D.C. with a Howard grad. But the universities we came here to are Morris Brown, Morehouse, and Spelman. And I think we might have caught some Clark in the background of a shot because it's all right there. Yeah. What have you enjoyed most about getting to know these students? Uh, I mean, it was the just the, the the differences between each school. I mean, they're very you know if you if you close your eyes, they they feel very different. You know, especially if you talk about the difference between Spelman and Morehouse. It's not just the fact that Spelman is a, a women's college; it's that the type of women's college it is. You know, like it feels. I was really impressed with Spelman in such a way that I was like, oh, I think my I have to tell my daughters to go here. You know, so it just that was a every place has its own character. So I think that one of the themes of the season is. Uh, Black is not a monolith, so we have an episode that we did at the Geechee Gully with the Gullah Geechee culture of South Carolina, and this episode, then we do an episode in Mobile, Alabama that features my dad, just the idea that like there's all different types of black people in this country, but we tend to think of black as one thing. 
my um, newspaper has done a couple of series um, regarding this uh, topic. One on um, the University of Georgia, our flagship, our flagship university, trying to uh, further its diversity uh, aims. They've, I think, reached maybe about 8% diversity on their campus. And of course, wow, that in no the way reflects the state of Georgia. <laughs> um, on the other hand, we've also had a series on um, uh, H HBCUs. So the, um, the the dual goals of trying to diversify a flagship state university yet while still nurturing, bolstering, and growing um, campuses like Morehouse, Spelman, Clark, mm -hmm. are those at odds in any way? What do you, how do you see those two goals working in concert? I don't think they are at, are at odds. I mean, there's a whole uh, you know, demographic of kids who don't go to college at all, who could go to college, but are not encouraged to or not prepared for college. So, I mean, you know, if we did a better job of educating our youth in general, there'd be more kids to go to college, you know? So I think that the colleges have to make themselves relevant and they have to actually adapt with the times. And so if I don't think there's any, I think if you make every college the best version of itself, it only helps the students who go to those colleges. Yeah. Now, um, having heard your, um, experience on This American Life a few years ago about the... Uh, <laughs> it's Starbucks week. Yeah, I'm sure you love when people ask you about this because you probably <laughs> no, 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 talked about like, it I, I, I a million it times. Myself. I could have just kept the story to myself, but I've learned from my parents and from the history books that when black people keep racism from the, to themselves, it doesn't help anybody and it actually can sort of metastasize inside of you. So for me, it's like telling the story will hopefully create a situation which this doesn't happen to other people or at least creates a situation where other people can talk about how to how to prevent these things so I you know I did it to myself I'm the one who wrote the blog in 2015 about being kicked out of the Elmwood Cafe because they thought I was bothering my white wife and our baby uh, I'm the one who then when the Starbucks thing happened to, like whenever that was a few days ago who then wrote an article for CNN.com going yeah I relate to what these brothers went through mine wasn't as significant as theirs because I didn't get arrested but I relate to it because of some of the things happened to me so yeah and now the Elmwood Cafe a few days after my blog was written shut down permanently and now I'm also experiencing the, the wonderful racism of you closed the cafe you, you, you ruined my favorite cafe. So all these white faux liberals in Berkeley are now mad at me for closing their favorite cafe, which is like, so I get the racism on both ends. <laughs> so like, but again, I did it to myself. This is the job I chose. I could tell jokes about other things, but this is what I do. So in, in discussing what happened to you, you had been there twice in the same day as mm -hmm. a customer. Mm -hmm. And you were back there um, checking in because I think your wife was there with some yeah, friends. Yeah, it was my birthday, which is, you know, it's it, too perfect. So we my wife took me there for breakfast because it was her favorite cafe. And I said, like, we can go wherever you want to go because I'm a good husband. And, uh, <laughs> and so... We went back. I went there for breakfast. Then I left. She left to go to a mom's group because we had a 13-week-old baby, and then she was meeting with the moms. I went down the street to go to another cafe where I felt more comfortable sitting for hours and writing and drinking one cup of coffee. And then I was going to meet up with my wife. It just so happens that she decided to go back there with her friends. And so I went back to sort of just say hello. And as I kept – I was my plan was to keep moving throughout my day and just say hello. On my way, I bought this book uh, called The Case for Loving, which is about the loving couple who made interracial marriage legal in this country through the Supreme Court. And one of the people at the, the one of the women at the table that I'd been at for like a minute or so was like, what's that book? And I showed it to him. Allegedly, somebody who was a customer thought I was trying to sell these women this book because kids book on the street, you make a lot of money selling kids books on the streets. And, uh, and then the, somebody who worked at the cafe knocked on the window and was like, get out of here. And so we turned it into a whole Bay Area story that we like, we, you know, I wrote a blog, it became a big Bay Area story. The, 
the owner of the cafe reached out to us and said he wanted to do something. I said, let's have a public conversation. He, of his own volition, promised to start a program to end implicit bias in this in in his in his in his restaurant, in his neighborhood, then all of Berkeley. And then as soon as the headlines went away, he disappeared. So as the Starbucks things happen, as the Starbucks thing happens, I'm like. I sort of like, hey, this sounds good now that Starbucks is closing for a day and make plans to do all these things. But when the headlines are gone, we, I mean, we are we have a very short memory in this country now because we're experiencing so much news every day, you know. So we're going to, on some level, many of us will forget about it. The, you know, the vast majority of people forget about it. And then Starbucks can just sort of go, yeah, we took care of it. You know, so my thing is like, I was sort of saying, hey, I'm trying to remind everybody and myself that if we want Starbucks to do this, we can't just trust that they'll do it out of their own volition. I believe they have good intentions, but best intentions you know are you going to starbucks at all these days or are you it's funny it's, people say that i feel like it's only been like four days so i'm not i wasn't like an everyday starbucks person like it, but, so i had not had a starbucks since but i've actually there was a there was a list of uh black owned coffee shops that was passed around on the internet black owned coffee shops and tea shops and so i was like huh this is an opportunity to actually engage with black owned businesses and also just independently owned businesses in my neighborhood and other i travel a lot in other cities so it's not about boycotting Starbucks it's about choosing other places right now you know and we talked to my six-year-old daughter about it my three-year-old daughter about it and my six-year-old is very definitive like we don't go to Starbucks anymore because she just doesn't want to go to that place my three-year-old actually calls it the bad place so you know I think that because we have those conversations in our family about it it's not about boycotting Starbucks but it is about voting with my dollars for places that I know if you're black owned it's likely it'll be okay that I'm black and I'm there yeah how does the experience that students engage in on a campus like Morehouse, Spelman, Clark, Morris Brown, how does that prepare them to go out into the world where still these episodes happen with just crushingly um, frequently? I mean, students on these campuses are better prepared to go out into the world and deal with racism because they're actively in these settings. This black HBCUs are a response to racism. You know, maybe HBCUs wouldn't exist if the legacy of this country wasn't slavery and, and Jim Crow laws. But because of the history of the founding of this country, these become spaces where black people can relax and just focus and study. And also the the um, professors here have an investment. That's what I learned a lot in the episode. Have an investment in the student success that is a little bit deeper than if, you go, than if a white student goes to Harvard. They don't have the same individual investment in that student. Maybe if they personally know that student. But here, what I heard is that the administrators, the president, the, the, uh, the, the professors all have an investment in the success of each and every student because it's an HBCU. So I think students here are in many ways better prepared to deal with that than students who are on... Uh, PWIs, predominantly white institutions, where they're dealing with the racism of that institution in addition to trying to study. I mean, you know, as I said before, I really was impressed with Spelman just because they were so, it didn't feel like a university, it felt like a think tank. It felt like where, it just felt like we're, we're not, this feels bigger than four years of college, you know. I mean, I was impressed with Morehouse, and I think certainly at this era of America, it, I think it's important for black men to find places to talk about black manhood in a way that doesn't feel like it's a response to white maleness, you know? So I think that having a spot like Morehouse where black men can show up and go, look, look, we're going to talk about black malehood, but we're not going to be def- about, about a black, black black manhood, but we're not going to be defensive about it. And also, But we're also going to do it in a way where it's like, I can actually pull your coat and say, not like that. And you know that as another black man, that, that's, that I actually know what I'm talking about. So I think that those spaces are important. Just like medical school is important to learn how to be a doctor. <laughs> like, you know, like you can't. You know, every school has, can have a, a separate focus from just educating the general populace. 
Kamel Bell was joined on stage by commentator Angela Rye and some members of the Morehouse community. Um, audience members lined up on either side of the auditorium with questions, and so it was a really super engaging dialogue that followed the screening. So let's take a listen. Hello, my name is Bentu Javarte. I am a junior political science major from Spelman, and um, I have a full functioning class of with five students, and so I, I do not think that class size is a problem. I did want to ask, however, um, that how do you feel like your portrayal of Morris Brown in particular shapes the audience's perspectives and support of HBCUs as a whole? My portrayal of Morris Brown? Uh, I, you know, I think that the hard thing, with the, well, the thing with the show is that if you, pre you are, we're trying to present lots of different versions of this. If we come to just Morehouse, then we're just showing a men's college, and we're just showing a men's college that is ostensibly doing well. I know there's funding issues. If we just go to Morehouse and Spelman, then it's like, okay, we, it's a women's college and men's college. We're trying to, we're trying to figure a, out a diversity of HBCUs while also not act like everybody's doing great. You know, so I hope that the way we framed uh, Morris Brown, I can't guarantee how people take it away, but especially sitting and talking with the professors, like, this is an incredible person. He is doing incredible work. Shouldn't we fund? Shouldn't we help this work out? So I certainly can't guarantee that's going to happen. But even sitting here right now with Angela going, I need to find out his name. I feel like, well, that's a start, you know. So, I, you know, it's, you know, it's a, when as a black man on TV, there's the thing about like you want to show how your people are doing better and smarter and more amazing than America says they are, and also you want to be honest about like. Well, there's also ways in which we can do better or we need some help and because we, we don't want to act like it's all going great. You know what I'm saying? So that's the, that mix is the, for every episode in which I feature, which is a black episode, we have three this season, I feel like, is that I'm sort of also, I'm trying to make that balance and it's a very delicate balance and when I, does it, when I don't do it correctly, I hear from people about it. So, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's, this is the best, easiest job in the world, so I'm not going to complain, but it's also like it's something I feel very deeply. My name is Kyle Drum, I'm a senior psychology major. Journalism minor from Gary, Indiana. And I just have one very quick question, and this is actually for Miss Rye and Dr. Rice. Um, I'm sure you both have heard of Candace Owens, uh, far right. So um, recently, I watched a video of her basically um, saying that Black Lives Matter and younger protesters are now childish uh, babies fighting problems that they never faced themselves. We love the scream slavery. Jim Crow and segregation, but none of us here, necessarily in school currently and or uh, slightly older than us, weren't even a part of that situation and or in that situation. Um, by any chance, what do you see, do you see any validity in her argument? No. <laughs> I wanted and, to answer and why, that one. And, and, and why? That was, that was more Well, I think, I, my, my quick response, and we can talk about this in class tomorrow, you, you're just taking I up people's time. <laughs> no, I know, I know. You said um, both of us in his defense. You talking about you want me to answer? You said both of us. Fake news. <laughs> so so let, let, I, I think that's a it's, it's a red herring. I think it from a psychological perspective. I think it's identifying with the professor, with the oppressor, and I think that it's it's dangerous. I think that there's a there's a there's a platform that so often people want to attach themselves to so that they can be visible and be validated that oftentimes what they'll do is they'll identify with the oppressor so that they can get some shine and then you have Kanye West retweeting it it's like oh my god I, everything I do I love myself I'm my biggest fan because of you look at what the pathology has done to our people in many ways and resist that pathology right I think that's that that's why I don't think it has a lot of validity because it doesn't make any sense 
I, I know you didn't ask me, but uh, can, I, can I answer? You're, you're the boss. Oh, no, I'm not the boss. I'm just, I'm just the, the servant. Uh, you'll, I mean, I've seen in my lifetime that America's favorite black conservative thing doesn't last. Nobody gets to be America's favorite black conservative for that long, whether you go to Michael Steele, whether you go to Alan West, whether you go to Alan Keyes, whether you go to uh, Herman Cain. You should write that article. That's a good word. Oh, thanks. Thanks. Uh, whether it's Stacey Dash. So as soon as she sort of... Remember that? That's real. That she was a fun three right? weeks. Yeah. So what? So, what about your homegirl Omarosa? How's she doing? Uh, so when I when I see Candace Owens and I don't know her, I've never. This is the first I ever really heard of her until the, in this moment. So I don't know. But when I heard that she was now like getting elevated to this thing and she's suddenly getting guest spots on Fox News, see if Fox News gives her a permanent job. Stacey Dash never got a permanent job. No, most people don't get permanent jobs. The other thing is like I was like, uh oh, the clock's ticking over her because they don't keep those people around very long, which is the proof of the fact that the ideology is flawed. I would, um, I would say to you that she just confirmed for me that the sunken place is real. Um, I would also say to you that um, I'm trying really hard not to retweet or respond to any of it because I don't want to help to continue to give her a platform for the nonsense. I think um, the third point I would raise to you is something that a mentor told me, and I'm so, so grateful. I was thinking about going to work at a conservative government relations firm when I was leaving Nafio. I was like, I'm gonna go to the Hill, but they have a really good money offer. So this is really for y'all who are about to graduate. The money might be good, but can you sleep at night, mm. right? And so when you get ready to sell yourself off, think about the hard work of our ancestors, Harriet and Rosa Parks and Coretta Scott King and Martin Luther King Jr. who's an alum and Frederick Douglass and, you, and Sojourner Truth and you think about the many ways in which they risk their lives so that we can be better. Is it worth it to lie? Is it worth it to say that police brutality is not a real thing? Is it worth it to say after black boy, after black woman, after Latino brother and sister have been shot down and killed by the police or folks acting as law enforcement, George Zimmerman? Is it worth it to lie so that your check could be, and I don't even know she's getting paid that much. So my point to you is, you should never take the shorter line to fame and like just prostitute your whole soul. Like it's just never going to be worth it. Do not sell yourself, do not sell the ancestors, do not sell your alma mater that short. I think it's completely different from conservative ideology that may be rooted and grounded in some type of real historical fact versus someone who's just blatantly lying for an amen corner of the KKK who come out and not eat chicken with. Right, like it is completely different. So I would just challenge you to make sure that you are always governed by your moral compass, by doing the right thing and making sure that you are helping to uplift the race, opening doors for us, keeping those doors open and never poo-pooing, I had to think about it because it's some elders in the poo-pooing on the legacy and what's a real historical fact. So, ladies and gentlemen, a big round of applause, Dr. David Wall Rice, Ms. Angela Rice, Dr. Mount Carroll, Mr. Daniel Rollins. That concludes the panel portion for the event this evening. And we will have Kamal and Angela come back out. We've got some special gifts for you after the Greek demonstration, okay? Okay, all right. Oh, yeah. Let's see what's happening in and around Atlanta over the next 10 days. First up, one of my very favorite bands, Calexico, is in town, playing at Terminal West on May 7th. Led by vocalist and guitarist Joey Burns, 
and drummer John Convertino, Calexco has been soundtracking the wide open spaces of the Southwest since the mid-1990s. Based in Tucson, Arizona, the band takes its name from a dusty desert city on the California-Mexico border. Their latest album, The Thread That Keeps Us, was released in January this year. If you count only widely available studio albums, it's the band's ninth, but they've done quite a few live and rare releases over the years. The band has been described as desert noir, and primarily it's really a blend of Americana with a little Mexican seasoning, and the occasional pinch of other international flavors. And like David Hasselhoff, they're really big in Germany for some reason. Check out Colexco at Terminal West on May 7th. Those tickets are $25, and you can get more info at TerminalWestATL.com. Heading south of the border, Natalia Lafourcade brings Mexican musical tradition to center stage on May 9th. You might have seen her on the Oscars earlier this year, where she performed Remember Me from the movie Coco with Miguel. Lafourcade is a Grammy-winning musician who released her debut album back in 2003. While much of her work leans toward rock and pop, her most recent albums have a more traditional feel. She's released two volumes of Musas, one in 2017 and one in 2018. Both albums are homages to the musical heritage of Latin America. The first was nominated for Best Album at the Latin Grammys, where it won the award for Best Folk Album. Natalia Lafourcade will perform at Center Stage in Atlanta on May 9th. Ticket prices are $40 in advance and $45 at the door. Get more info at centerstage-atlanta.com. Sorted Lives, a campy cult classic, started life as a play by Texan Del Shores. Since then, it's been made into both a movie with a cast that included Olivia Newton-John, Delta Burke, and Leslie Jordan, and a short-lived TV series. It also inspired a film sequel called A Very Sorted Wedding. Now, Atlanta's Outfront Theater is going back to the source and performing the original play. But they're giving it a little twist. This will mark the first time that it's being performed with an all-African-American cast. The story involves a fine, upstanding Texas matriarch who dies in morally suspect circumstances and the secrets that emerge when the family gathers for her funeral. Playwright Del Shores will be in town to see Outfront's spin on the show on Saturday, May 19th and Sunday, May 20th, and he'll be hosting special talkbacks afterwards. And they'll also have a screening of A Very Sorted Wedding at 3 p.m. on May 20th. That's Sorted Lives at Outfront Theater, running May 3rd through May 20th, and those tickets are $15 to $25, and you can get them at OutfrontTheater.com. Everyone needs a little sweet love, and the rapturous soul of Anita Baker provides all you need. She's coming to the Fox Theater on her farewell tour, and the shows have already officially sold out, even after a third one was added. But, of course, there are always the resellers if you're willing to pay a little, or a lot, extra to catch the show. She says she's retiring after this current run, so this is probably your last chance to see her live. And if you don't know Anita Baker, go listen to her 1986 album, Rapture, immediately. Everyone needs it in their life. Anita Baker's farewell run comes to the Fox Theater on May 10th, 11th, and 13th. The original ticket prices were $57.50 to $200, but who knows what you'll be paying for them now. You'll find more info on the shows at foxtheater.org, but you'll have to search around for those reseller tickets. Puppet shows aren't just for kids. In fact, sometimes they're designed specifically for grown-ups. 
That's the case with Experimental Puppetry Theater at the Center for Puppetry Arts, which runs May 10th through the 13th. Artists from several disciplines work together to produce, workshop, and perform these original works for adult audiences. This year, XBT includes five live performances, five short films, and one art installation. Among the things you'll see are the story of a traveler and his beloved ship, the history of opals, correspondence from the afterlife, and the tale of a friendship between a monkey and a kernel of popcorn. That's Experimental Puppetry Theater at the Center for Puppetry Arts, happening Thursday, May 10th through Sunday, May 13th. Tickets are $15 and include admission to the Worlds of Puppetry Museum, which has the largest collection of Jim Henson puppets and artifacts in the world. Get your tickets online at puppet.org. For more things to do around Metro Atlanta, head to accessatlanta.com. Our senior editor is Nicole Smith, podcast edited by Ryan Horn, music by Bo Emerson and Billy Guin, and I'm your host, Shane Harrison. Join us next week for more Access Atlanta. AJC Access Atlanta is sponsored by Northside Hospital Cancer Institute, built to beat cancer. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, the Monica Pearson Show. When you look at what you've become, what has it cost you? Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most powerful influencers, as you've never heard them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.